Father, a lot to tackle this morning, and by your grace, we will see the truth of your word. So give us ears to hear and a heart to understand what you are teaching us this morning. Father, that we see your glory and we see Christ, and we feel the power of your spirit working through the word so that we may have life and have it abundantly in Christ. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we have been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, if you haven't already gathered that. And uh, we have already seen how Ecclesiastes has really examined every aspect of our lives, our our working lives, our relationships, the way we use money, uh, all these different aspects, even addressing the gambit of human emotions that we all will experience or have experienced, frustration and anger and joy. And so the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes has been looking at life through two different lenses, looking at the way that we can approach our life. One lens says that a life that we live without God is meaningless, but a life lived with God matters. And what we've been saying through this whole series is that if we choose to live in the craziness of life, living for ourselves under our rule, under our reign, in other words, without God, then life seems to be baffling. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's meaningless or it's vanity. It makes no sense. And so we find that life that we are living is void of true meaning, it's futile. But if we approach life and all of its craziness living under the reign and rule of God, then life really does matter. And that even in the craziness of life and the things that absolutely make no sense to us, we can still find joy and contentment and blessing if we live for God. If we let his son, Jesus, reign and rule over our lives. And so as we move into this text today on the tail end of what it really means to live under God's rule and worshiping him, the preacher takes us back into our world of everyday stuff and says that we live in a world that is consumed with power, both for themselves and for power over others, consumed with wealth, consumed with possessions. And as we will see by God's grace is that if we find our true satisfaction, our joy, our hope in those things, it will leave us broken. And it truly is meaningless. But if we see those things with the right view that God is the king over all things and we use all that he's given us for his glory and for the good of the world, then we see that life really doesn't matter and a life lived with God is a life that finds satisfaction in God. That a life lived with God is a life that finds satisfaction in God. And as the preacher brings us back into the real world, we're already confronted with the reality that there is oppression and there is injustice in our world. Verses eight and nine, and the preacher says, this shouldn't really surprise us. 
We see it everywhere. And already the preacher has already addressed this all the way back in chapter four, right? Where he says, oppression is everywhere under the sun. That's one of his expressions that he likes to use throughout Ecclesiastes. All the stuff really happening on the everyday stuff of life, there's tons of oppression. And so the temptation for us is as we see what the preacher writes here is to go, yeah, yeah, that's true, I get it. All I need to do is turn on Fox News, CNN, NPR, whatever it is, and see that there's oppression everywhere. And it's not just over in the third world country in Myanmar where Will is, but it's even in our own backyard. And so the temptation though is to say, that's true, uh, what do I do about it? I can't really do anything, so I'm just gonna move on. Let's go to verse 10. And I want to camp out here for a second and want you to feel the heaviness of really what Q is doing. Because Q doesn't really give us an answer. And I say Q, that's Kohelet, the preacher. I'll go back and forth on that. You've been with us, you know what I mean by that. But the preacher doesn't really give us an answer of how do we address the oppression. So I want us to camp there for a second. Because in the eyes and ears of Israel, God's people, the Jews, who would have heard the preacher speaking this news through Ecclesiastes, oppression was real for them. Oppression was a part of Israel's story. And as we often do when we think about the true story of God, if we go all the way back to the, almost the beginning of God's true story, we look in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and we see that Israel, God's chosen people, are enslaved and oppressed by the nation of Egypt. And God hears their cries, and God in his grace comes to his people, and he rescues them out of slavery to Israel, and he parts the Red Sea, and he brings his people into the wilderness where God says, I now am gonna make the deepest of all agreements with you, this covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And God gives Israel his 10 commandments, his rules and his laws that will shape them to be a blessing, not only amongst themselves, but then to be a blessing to all the nations that they will encounter. That God's law and his rules were to shape Israel to be a light to the nations. And so God reminds them, you were oppressed by Israel or by Egypt. You know what it means to not have justice. Therefore, as you move out into the promised land that I will give you if you obey me, I want you to live your lives full of justice, full of equality. I want you to show people what I'm like by living a life of justice and equality and love and mercy. This really was Israel's vocational calling as they were to go into the world and show the world what God was like, they were to reflect God's heart to a nation around them and to the nations beyond them who did not know God. And they failed often in that story of bringing God's good news of who he was and his justice to the nations around them. But God was so committed that the people of the world would know who he is and what he's like in his justice and righteousness and that he continued to love Israel and he threw out judges and he brought prophets to the nation of Israel to remind them again, 
you are God's people and you are to live differently. Your lives are supposed to be marked out as a separate people and your lives are supposed to show justice. Because here's the problem. Not only did Israel fail in bringing justice to the nations around them, they failed to bring justice even among their own people. That the poor were becoming poor. The rich were becoming more rich. Oppression was happening that Israel itself was oppressing its own people. And the prophets warned Israel, if you continue to do this against God's heart, you will be sent into exile. You will not be able to inhabit the land that I've promised you. You will not be able to live out the calling that I've called you to. And that's to be a light to the people around you, to show them my heart. I've made you in my image to reflect to the world what I'm like. And I'm a God of justice. And even though the judges came and the prophets came, Israel still failed to live that out. But God was still committed, still committed to that heart of justice. And he promised through the prophets that there would come someone, a king who would reign in righteousness, whose very rule would be that of justice. And that he would come not only to Israel, but he would come to the entire world, bringing his justice and his mercy and his love and his salvation. And as the story unfolds, we see time and time again, Israel fails at their calling and we are left at the end of the Old Testament wondering, is God's promise ever gonna come true? Will there be justice Will there be righteousness for the poor and the oppressed and the lost, the least, the left out? And as the New Testament unfolds, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, is the one who we recognize and see as the one who was the promised king who would bring justice and righteousness. Look what Jesus says about himself in Luke chapter four, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we're gonna unfold this more as we jump into the gospel of Luke later on this year. But what Jesus is saying here in this passage is everything that God has promised in the ages before of the time where a king would come and would rule and bring justice to the least, the lost, the left out, the poor, that time is now. And I'm the one in whom that is going to be accomplished and fulfilled. Israel failed to be that light to the nations. Now Jesus will take up that role of Israel and will perfectly fulfill it so that the poor would have life and find justice and the salvation of God. And Jesus, as we know about the, if we know the true story that Jesus then, as he does his ministry and calls the disciples together, he then empowers his disciples and through their word and through the building up of the church that we today, as we go out into the everyday stuff of life, made in the image of God, we reflect God's heart. 
So much so that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, which literally is the word justice, for he will be filled. That Jesus comes onto the scene and says, I am the one in whom the poor will receive salvation, free from oppression. And as we know the story, Jesus goes on to gather a church who will then go into the world reflecting to the world what he is like in bringing the justice of God to bear in the everyday stuff of life. And family, I want to encourage us as we step out and we think about a life that is really mat- that really matters is a life that is, finds its satisfaction in God that we then, if we are truly satisfied in God, we need to live out the heart of God. So the question again, what do we do about it? How do we then speak and move into a world that we see all around us where oppression and injustice of the poor, the marginalized, it's everywhere. What do we do about it? Let me offer a few suggestions as we move on. Number one, pray that your eyes and your hearts would be open to where oppression and injustice is all around you. Be open and willing to accept that God cares about the injustice and he has created the church, his people, to speak against that. Practical ways. Do you see people in your own workplace who are being taken advantage of? People in your communities that are the least, the lost, the left out for a variety of reasons. Does that even move you to compassion and mercy? Start there. Ask God to give you ears to hear and eyes that can be open. And then ask God to give you the wisdom and the courage and the love to move into those areas of brokenness and oppression and ask God, what can I do with the power that you've given me? to be a blessing, to see the poor in your own community get what they need. There's a hundred different ways and time doesn't allow us to really go there today, but maybe that's something you and your MC or as you go out today, you, you kind of talk about and you go, how would it look if we in the power of the spirit and by God's grace, were able to meet oppression and justice? with the glory and the gospel of Jesus. A life lived with God is a life satisfied in God and lives out God's heart, a heart of justice. Well, the preacher continues, and it seems as if he might make a a really strong change here, but what we see is that the oppression of the poor, the, the power over that is always most of the time fueled by this consumption of wealth and power and material things. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet. Whether they eat little or much, But as far as for the rich, their abundance permits them. 
no sleep. John D. Rockefeller, the famous oil tycoon, one of the most rich, uh, one of the richest men ever to have lived, was once famously asked, "How much money is enough?" A little bit more was his response. Right? The Mega Millions is one point six billion dollars. Billion dollars going into Tuesday's mega, can you, can you imagine that? I heard even on this, the, the, this morning as I was driving here, that the number is so large that they can't even, they don't even, their computer system for mega millions can't even uh, put that on the screen. They have to hand write that. Now we can all say, man, $1.6 billion, what would I do with that? So much good. I would buy every single one of you your own pizza. Okay, with that amount of money. And so we think that would really solve all my problems. It could solve some of them. Sure, it could. But there's this idea of the more we get, the more we want. And the preacher says that as your goods consume, so do those who consume them. I like the way that Eugene Peterson in his translation of the Bible, the message says this. He says, the more loot you get, the more looters show up. That we think that money will satisfy us. That it truly is with $1.6 billion, my life would rock. Maybe for a little bit. But can you imagine all the trouble that would come from all that? perhaps? I mean, love of money. And here, let's just get this out in the open. Money in and of itself, not bad. Okay, we have a father in heaven who I believe wants us to provide for our families. Gotta have money to do that. Putting a roof over our family's head, being able to buy the things that we need. And I even believe that we have a father who's so gracious that he even allows us the freedom of even buying things we want. That's a good dad. That's a great dad. But the temptation for us is to take those good things, especially wealth, and I don't just mean your money, but I'm talking even about your possessions, the consumption that we live right now in such a consumer society that it is a threat, I believe, to the people of God. Because instead of using our money to worship God, we are worshiping our money and our possessions. Remember what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy? Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, when's the last time you convinced yourself of that truth? with Alexa giving me anything I want whenever I ask for it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. See, money by itself is neutral. Like a hammer, 
I can use a hammer to do what it's intended to do, pound nails, do work. Or I could use a hammer to beat somebody over the head with. The hammer isn't the issue. It's my motivation and how I use that hammer. And the same is true with money here. And you notice that Paul doesn't say that money is the problem. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. So what do we mean by that? What does Paul mean by that? The love of money is that my, my heart, my hope, my satisfaction, my, 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 uh, everything about what I'm looking for in life is caught up in my bank account. That I'm not who I should be unless I have money, unless I'm secure, unless I'm financially free, unless my 401k is padded exactly where I want. The list goes on and on. And not that those things are bad things. It's good to save. It's good to have money for a rainy day. Those things, but it's the desire and consumption that it takes over your heart so that your whole life is consumed with that. And then you start realizing my whole life, my thoughts, my desires, everything is about getting more. More and more and more. Why is the love of money a root of all evil? A root can either provide flourishing or like a weed, it can choke out all the beautiful growth. And that's what Paul is saying is that the love of money chokes out contentment in our lives. Chokes out contentment. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. I gotta be honest with you, I don't know that I've ever really said that and believed that completely. It's a root that chokes out contentment. Why does this matter? Because as we see in the true story of God, that money, primarily, not just money itself, the love of money and possessions is one of the biggest barriers between God and his people. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, after God has rescued Israel from Egypt, he has given them his 10 commandments and his laws Moses is reminding Israel that as God begins to bring them into the promised land, as they settle among the nations, as they are to be a people that bring the light of God and his justice to bear and to live a different life under God's rule, Moses warns them. And this is what Moses says to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 starting in verse six. <clears throat> Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. That's the fear of God, right there. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. See, for Israel, this was awesome stuff to have their own land, no longer oppressed, and 
Moses is outlining all the blessings that will come, the good things. If we were to translate that into our lives today, you have a home and a job and clothes and a vehicle and a PlayStation. And you have these things that are good gifts of God. What a good dad. What a good father. But when you have eaten, verse 10, and are satisfied, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down and when you, your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and to test you that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirm his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Family, here's the temptation. In a world that we are swimming in, where we have everything we want, consuming ourselves to death, we are well-fed, we are well provided for, and I get that there's different levels of that, but primarily as a whole, we are wealthy people. And the temptation is as we accumulate these things and as we have everything at our disposal, we forget God. And we forget that he is the one who has given us these things. And so the things, the created things, become that which we worship rather than the creator. And so we start loving money and possessions and power more than we love God. I'm at fault. I do it all the time. You're not gonna meet my needs, God, I need more. Family, we cannot be a people tempted by the things of this world. A life lived with God is a life satisfied with God. And if we are living and hungering for wealth and possessions and money, look, look what it does back to Ecclesiastes. Look at some of the consequences of this. Verse 13, if we are loving money, our wealth hoarded, verse 13, can come to our own harm. That could take a lot of different ways. The preacher says, for example, you have more, verse 14, you might have a lot of wealth and you make a really bad investment. You want more, you're, you're, you're making bad 
choices with your money. You're spending more than you should. Why do we have so much in this country, but yet we have so many people in debt? Because we convinced that we need more and that we spend so much that we don't even have money to give to our future generations coming after us as an inheritance. Things that for Israel was super important was a sign of God's blessing here. And then 17, those who love money all their days, they eat in darkness with great frustration and affliction and anger. The love of money can strip contentment and it's meaningless. At the end of the day, it's futile. And as we've encountered often, we come to these texts and we're like, man, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is such a downer. It's like, really? Like, how do I get equipped and encouraged and I go and meet the world on Monday? Well, what the preacher does, as he's often done before, is he throws in what they call these carpe diem passages, these seize the day passages. And like, a fulcrum in the middle of a seesaw. That one side is always, it's this stinks. And then over here, it's like, wow, that really is, is misfortune. And in the middle of this seesaw, there's this fulcrum of good news that the preacher brings to light. Verse 18, this is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun, during the few days of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. Eat, drink, work. The NIV says satisfaction, a better translation of the Hebrew is to find enjoyment or good. To eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction under the sun, the very few days of life that God has given us. The preacher has already talked about this. He's gonna talk about it again. Here's the point of that. In the midst of the craziness of life, the oppression around us, the, the desire for power and wealth that we see all around us, it's daunting. We feel helpless. We feel like, God, where are you? These are questions that we've wrestled with all throughout this book. And the preacher brings us back again to see that it's God who gives all things so you can eat and you can drink and you can do your job in joy because it points us to the good gift giver. It points us to God. And a life lived with God matters when you recognize that I can still do that with his power and his joy even in the midst of difficult life that matters. And that brings hope. The preacher continues, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their work, this is a gift of God. This is the gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. We have a God 
who knows that we are surrounded by brokenness. It's happened and started all the way back in the garden. And as we've said through this book that we are trying to figure out how do we live out the goodness of Genesis 1 and 2 in a Genesis 3 world? And it's to remember God. It's to enjoy the gifts that God has given us for his glory. And to use what God has given, whether it's wealth and possessions, material things, for the glory of God and so that others may see what God is like through that. It's a gift of God. And just as soon as that seesaw comes and evens out on that fulcrum, kind of goes back again on the other side where the preacher now says, starting in chapter six, he's seen another evil. That God does give many people everything their hearts want. All the money, the 1.6 billion mega million, someone's gonna win that. And they're gonna think life is grand. I got everything I want. But the preacher says, guess what? Here's something that's meaningless is that God may give people what they want, but they never find joy in it. They're not content. Maybe you've been there. You've seen people that have experienced that as well. It's a grievous evil and the preacher goes on and he makes this shocking comparison that somebody who has all that they want and can't enjoy it and can't use it for the glory of God, that a stillborn child is better than they are. That's shocking. That's the worst curse the preacher could think of in this moment. And the idea here isn't that the preacher is saying or neglecting or minimizing the tragedy of a stillborn child. He's amplifying the tragedy of a life lived without contentment in God. So much so that he says at the very end, verse nine, better what the eye sees, knowing contentment, than the roving of our appetite, wanting more. This is a meaningless and it's a chasing after the wind. See, this is real life. And the tension that we are left with today is the tension that we've been wrestling with throughout the entire book is how do we then live a life with God when we live in a world that looks exactly like the preacher has been talking about? How do I live a life of joy in my work and in the things that God has given me when I'm surrounded by brokenness and struggle? What does that look like? How do I get to a point where I can see that a life lived with God really is a life satisfied in God? It's like the preacher keeps bringing us to this point and then brings us back to just death and destruction and depression. And see, what the preacher did not know is what we know today. Is that the one who was sent into the world to bring justice and to bring salvation and life is the one that can truly satisfy our hearts. And that is the person, Jesus the Christ. We read in the New Testament that all the treasures, all the riches of God are ours in Christ. 
bigger and better than anything this world could give us. That the one who died for our sake, that we might become the righteousness of God is the only hope that you have to live in this world that is so broken and so consumed with power and money and possessions that Jesus is the only hope you have to step out into that real world on Monday and meet it with joy and with contentment and even with hope. Because we know that in Jesus, our savior, the one who died for us and raises us to new life in him, he has promised that someday he's coming back again to put an end completely and finally to oppression. Completely and finally to our consumption for self. That Jesus is coming once again and he's gonna restore all of creation so that it lives perfectly under his lordship forevermore. We need to recognize in the craziness of the world that we live in, number one, it's crazy. And this is real life stuff. The second reality is that there is hope and there is joy in the everyday stuff of life that we live right now. If we find that contentment and that satisfaction in Jesus. And Jesus gives us the power of his spirit to meet that craziness head on and to take the good news of his kingdom into the world. Family, Chris and I pray this for you guys all the time, that we would be a people shaped by the good news of Jesus and meeting the brokenness of the world with the power that God gives us, with the good news of the gospel. Life is meaningless if you're living it without Christ, but it really matters and it's full of joy and it's full of blessing if you're living for him. Father, my prayer is that you would empower these men, women, and children with your spirit to meet this world head on with the good news of Jesus, with his love and justice, mercy, in word and deed, in language and in life. In the name of Jesus we ask, amen.